Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, have you ever learned about an old family heirloom from 100 or 150 years ago and then wondered, where is it today? Well, Ron Fox, the finder of all finders, will explain to you his technique for finding such items and maybe obtaining them. Hi, it's Fisher. We've got a loaded show, including Paul Woodbury talking DNA this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And it's great to have you along. If you're new to the show, of course, we love to share expert advice on how to find your ancestors and learn their stories and, of course, hear stories that other people have found as well. We've got Paul Woodbury from Legacy Tree Genealogist, the DNA specialist, coming up. Later on in the show, we're going to do an Ask Us Anything segment with Ron Fox. He is one of the expert finders of everything historical, and he'll have some great advice for you coming up answering your questions. Right now, it is time to head out to Boston and talk to David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hello, David. Hey, how are things with you, sir? I am grand and glorious, and I hear you've been celebrating. Uh, yeah, I had a conversation with my mom's first cousin. She's 87, lives out in Alberta, Canada. And she happened to mention, do you interested in the family Bible of my grandfather? And I said, pardon? It exists. This is a family Bible that was presented in 1900 to my great-grandfather by his great-aunt, who would have been the sister of my third great-grandfather and daughter of my fourth great-grandfather. Wow, 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 man, I'm, I'm, I, hold on, yep. I've got to get my flow chart going. But it's in your family. <laughs> That's the only thing we need to know, right? In your direct line. It's my direct line. It came to Canada when we came over from England in 1910. Oh, wow. And you're going to have that. How cool is that? should be a, a great treasure, and there's family records in it, too, like Christmas for wow. a genealogist. Isn't that fun? And I had a little fun find this past week as well. I was online late one night and discovered that my fourth great-grandparents in Fairfield, Connecticut, one of my revolutionary soldier ancestors and his wife, were mentioned in a deed, and they were transferring land to somebody else there, and it mentioned what box this was in in a collection. If you've ever been to the Fairfield County archives there, their, their museum and history Center. It is fantastic. So I made note what it was, looked up the phone number, called the director the next day. She took a picture of the two documents with her cell phone and texted them to me. So I had them in like 12 hours from the moment I found them online. And they each had signatures on them from 1790. I'm thinking, this is fantastic. What an era we live in, you know? Oh, the digital age has made accessibility so much better for people. Well, we have a lot of family histoire news today. So let's get started, David. What do you got? Well, let's dig into our 18th century burnt tavern, which was recently dug up. This is in the town of Brunswick in North Carolina, where British troops destroyed this important port town, and they found in it something about the size of a pea. It was actually a jewel that says Wilkes and Liberty. 
in regards to John Wilkes, who was a rebel. And this is sort of like a little piece of propaganda jewelry. Yeah, this uh, John Wilkes, he was a member of parliament in England and supported the American cause. And this little jewel would stay like in a ring. And this is how people would identify each other as belonging to the secret society that wanted to overthrow King George III. How cool is this? It is very, very cool. And something so small could have easily been lost years ago, but now has been rediscovered and has a whole news story about it. You can find that on ExtremeGenes.com. Finding things don't always happen to be with archaeologists. Sometimes it's when you pull down a wall. Betty Sissom, age 89, received a gift of a lifetime. She received her wallet from the mid-1940s that was in her former high school in Centralia, Illinois. Yeah, it had been stolen 75 years ago, and after they took out the money, somebody took it and threw it in like in a heating vent. And so as they were renovating the high school, they found not only her wallet, but like 14 others there. But she's 89 years old and is finding all the old photographs and all the old documents, and she's just having a ball with it. Truly a time capsule brought to you by a thief. Yeah, that's right. Another time capsule I'm going to talk about actually has to do with something we won't see in our lifetime, Fish. But in 2121, when the folks in Ireland are researching their own ancestors or abroad, the 2021 census has a space where you can write in a message to your descendants. This time capsule is a new thing. I've never seen it on any census before. No. And I think it's something we should do in the American census. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they're still kicking around what's going to be on that one. So maybe this will be an inspiring idea. I love that. Wouldn't that be fun to supply a note to your descendants for 100 years from now? I actually put a note on the last census to my descendants in the border. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Well, listen, going way, way back, you know, a lot of us have European roots, but, you know, they weren't always in Europe. A great story by National Geographic talks about the first Europeans were not who you think they were. The upcoming August issue will talk about roots and bloodlines going from Africa, the Middle East, and the steppes of Russia. You know what the fun part about this story is? It talks about... Technology has come such a way that you can find a bit of an old skeleton and for around $500 get the DNA sequenced. I'm really hoping, Fish, this will not lead our listeners to get backhoes and go visit the cemetery Mm. to get a pit of old great-great-grandma. Yeah, yeah, that could be very, very challenging. That is amazing. 500 bucks for a full genome. And then we just got word a little bit ago here about this. The Ukraine and Soviet-era records, including some KGB records, are being opened up online for everybody to enjoy. (laughs) And that's another story you'll be able to find on ExtremeGenes.com. Yeah. So if you have Russian ancestry, this is opportunity to find out what happened to people. All right. Thank you so much, David. We will talk to you again next week. And coming up next, we're talking DNA with Paul Woodbury, the DNA specialist from our friends at Legacy Tree Genealogists. And we're going to really try to keep it kind of basic here and talk about those matches who aren't really matches. And Paul, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Fish. Thought we'd give a little fundamental lesson today talking about DNA for people who are just getting into it. And this is really interesting to me because I find that in my experience, 90 to 95 percent of my matches have gone on there with no tree suggesting what they're really looking for when they do their test is their ethnicity results. 
They want to know where they're coming from, what their results are, what percent come from Ireland, and what percent comes from France. So anybody who's listening right now who hasn't tested and you're thinking, hey, I want to do my DNA test, we understand that may be all you're looking for. But in the process of doing that, you're going to run into some things that could actually change your life, potentially. Right, Paul? Absolutely. And this topic's interesting to me because when I tell people that I work as a genetic genealogist, the first thing they say is often, oh, like those commercials on TV, you know, the ethnicity (laughs) things. And I say, yeah, exactly. And they say, well, what do you do with that? And I say, well, I help to identify people's biological parents. I help adoptees. I help, you know, solve historic research questions about who great-grandpa's parents were. Right. And they kind of look at me and they say, how do you do that with those ethnicity results? How do you get from ethnicity to, to, to figuring out an actual person? And the answer is that, well, yes, we use the ethnicity for broad context, but there's a whole other process that we actually go through in using those genetic cousins to really make some some fascinating discoveries about a person's family tree. Yeah, and, and recently I had that myself where a friend of mine, a longtime friend, she called me and said, hey, I did the DNA test, I wanted to see my ethnicity, and now I have a half-aunt and a half-cousin. Can you come over here? And I said, yeah, yeah, let's take a look at that. And uh, yeah. it didn't take too long. We figured out that her grandfather had fathered a child back in the 30s. And they now have had a little reunion. And this woman who was in her 80s has met her half-sisters. And it's been a, and a really fabulous thing, but completely unexpected. And so mm-hmm. for those of you who are intentionally taking DNA tests to try to figure out some of the answers of your ancestry, we thought we'd go through you know the basics of how this thing works with Paul today. And Paul, where would you start? So... In an adoption case, or for an unknown parentage case, a situation where you have a very recent ancestor who is unknown, whether that be a parent, both parents, or a grandparent, you are going to probably be using most of those genetic cousins in your DNA match list to figure out how they're related to each other and how you fit into their family tree. Mm -hmm. And that's fairly straightforward. But it gets a little bit more difficult the further we get back. Sure. When you're dealing with a, a case that's, that's your immediate family, every one of your matches is going to be pertinent in helping you to find clues and piece that puzzle together. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, now the one thing about this, though, I, I'm sure the question a lot of people will ask is when they get their results, they see hundreds, sometimes more than a thousand matches back there. How far back are the matches still relevant to your quest for something within the last three or four generations? So in, in your quest which is for something within the last three or four generations, I typically focus on those that share a larger amount of DNA, those sharing more than about 20 centimorgans of DNA. Now, typically, if you are from the United States, for example, you're going to have a lot of matches closer than that. And so I prioritize matches based on the total amount of DNA that they share, and that's measured in centimorgans. And I think that we we talked about that previously on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're going to want to focus on those closest matches first and then move down and dip down into some of the more distant matches. And as you move down the list, that will hopefully 
help you to prioritize the ones that are going to be most pertinent and hopefully you'll be able to solve your case before you have to dig into the weeds where there are some cases where we might not have matches that are true matches that are pertinent to your research question. You know, this is the thing. I think a lot of people listen to this who have never done DNA before and their eyes cross and their hair falls out when they hear about all this because it sounds complicated. First of all, it's really fun. It's like putting a puzzle together. And if you find that, okay, I have this person who is a match to me and we're sharing a match with this unknown person, now you know, well, potentially which side of the family that unknown person comes from and how they relate to your match and how they relate to you can help be a part of that puzzle in assembling just where you all tie in and maybe where these birth connections come from. Absolutely. And, you know, I've often thought as I've been engaging in genetic genealogy research, particularly for these autosomal DNA match lists, how much it reminds me of when I was a kid and I loved those logic puzzles. Yeah. And I loved those Sudoku puzzles and, and kind of working through, okay, based on the logic of who is matching who, how do they fit into the family tree? And it really is uh, a puzzle, it's a game, and it's really fun. Yeah, that's the bottom line. And so for people who are sitting there thinking, oh, this is so scientific, and I never did well in science in school, you don't need any scientific knowledge. You just need to understand what some of the rules of the game are. One is, as you mentioned, measuring centimorgans. That's kind of the measuring stick for matching DNA. In other words, how much DNA do you share with somebody you match to? And then what does that mean? How does that translate? So what do you use for that, Paul? When I am looking at how much DNA a person shares with me or with a client, I look at those centimorgans and I take that total and I bring it over to a calculator that's available at dnapainter.com and you just type that in and it pops out a set of probabilities for different levels of relationships. You can say, I'm going to type in, oh, this person shares 120 centimorgans with me. And it's going to tell you this person's most likely related as a second cousin once removed, a second cousin or a third cousin, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. It gives you a variety of different potential relationships because, as we've talked about, everybody inherits differently. Yeah, everybody inherits differently, and there's a little bit of overlap between these relational levels. So a person sharing 120 could be a second cousin. They could be a second cousin once removed, or they could be a third cousin. But one of those is going to be more likely than the others, and the other ones are still possible. And and so you just kind of have to weigh your options there and consider that evidence within the context of any other information that they provide, their family tree, their age, any surnames that you recognize, how they might fit into your family tree. Well, and you have to consider, as you mentioned, the age there, the fact that somebody could be from a generation before you or a generation after you, and that can affect what that relationship ultimately is as you try to you know, put this whole puzzle together. Exactly. And so you start with that. The next thing that I often will pursue is I begin to look at the relationships between my genetic cousins. I'm looking for how my genetic cousins are related to each other. And that is a key step in helping you to isolate 
the genetic cousins that are pertinent for your particular question. Because you go into your match list, if you're an adoptee or you're looking for a recent parent, everyone's going to be pertinent. But if you get a little further back, let's say we're trying to figure out who the parents of great-great-grandpa John are. Only a portion of your match list, only a portion of your genetic cousins are going to be related through great-great-grandpa John and through his unknown parents. And so your first task is to figure out who are those genetic cousins who are likely related through the ancestors of great-great-grandpa John. Yeah, this is where it starts getting a little more difficult because you're, you're much further back. Yeah. And so, you know, in an adoption case, everything's pertinent. You're using your own DNA, and everyone is going to give you clues about your ancestry. But in this case, I only got maybe 6% of my DNA from great-great-grandpa John. So I'm trying to use 6% of somebody's DNA to figure out who their parents are. One thing that you do in order to figure out who is pertinent from your list is you search for other people who descend from great-great-grandpa John. Who are the other people who also inherited DNA from great-great-grandpa John? So first we look for who has already tested that also descends from that individual. If you don't find any, then is a great opportunity to go and search for some more people who descend from great-great-grandpa John and invite them to perform DNA testing. Because what that's going to do is when we have a group of people who all descend from the same person who is our research subject, then we can begin to look who are the people who share DNA with at least two or three descendants of great-great-grandpa John. The, the next step that you want to pursue after you've got that first group of people, you may have identified people who are related to the descendants of great-great-grandpa John, but if great-great-grandpa John only had one wife, then all of those descendants are going to be related to her too. That's right. So your next step is to figure out, of those people who match multiple descendants of great-great-grandpa John, which ones are related through his wife's family, and which ones are the leftovers? Who are the people who are (laughs) left over? And those leftovers are the people that you want to focus on, because they are probably related through the unknown ancestors of great-great-grandpa How far back can you go? I've gotten various opinions from experts over time, Paul. How far back do you think autosomal can solve a parentage problem? So the further you go back in time, the more difficult it becomes, Yep, certainly. But I have found that I've been able to use autosomal DNA to find evidence, at least, of proposed relationships. I don't know that I would say that we've proven them but we've got really strong evidence for those relationships. And I've had some in the 1750s. I just recently had one where we were finding some genetic evidence for proposed relationships in the 1650s. Wow. I did not expect that answer. (laughs) Yeah. So certainly the further you go back in time, the more careful you have to be because... We have lots of ancestors at that level. In this case, with the 1650s, the client actually descended from that ancestral couple, I think, 
five different times through his ancestors. So he had lots and lots of chances to get DNA from those ancestors. Mm -hmm. So that may have contributed to why we were able to use it back that far. But as you're back that far, it's important to consider all of the ancestral lines for the matches that you're comparing against and to make sure that there's no other potential ways that you could be related to those people through other lines. Okay. I want to talk about this question, and I think even for those people who are very familiar with DNA research, this comes up. When is a match not a match? And this has to do with identifying matches as either identical by descent, which is most matches, and those that are what they call identical by state. And that means that basically it's just a coincidence that you happen to share a certain amount of DNA that looks the same or, or just goes from way back. And you had some complicated explanation of it. But how many matches can you expect are identical by state or basically a coincidence? So certainly we begin to see some matches that are identical by state or just by coincidence from very, very distant ancestry outside of genealogical time frames when they are sharing on a single segment that is quite small, I'd say under 10 centimorgans typically. Mm-hmm. Although I have heard of instances where it's possible to have matches who are showing up with much more DNA that are also identical by state. So you want to be careful putting down a hard and fast rule and saying anything lower than this is false and anything higher is good. Certainly anything over about 40 centimorgans is going to be a, a true match. And in most cases, down to 20 and 15 centimorgans, we're dealing with real matches, matches who share DNA with you because they have a recent common ancestor with you. Okay. Um, matches who are identical by descent. But anything lower than that, we enter into the realm of being very distant related, just sharing a common population history and being quite distantly related. You know, it's interesting you say that because I once had somebody tell me, yeah, I had a first cousin match and we couldn't figure out where we came together. And I just told him, oh, it was a mistake. You know, here's the bottom line. There's no mistake at the first cousin level. Agreed? (laughs) There's no mistake at the second cousin level or the third or the fourth generally. Right, Paul? Fourth generally. There are some exceptions. But, yeah, typically if they're an estimated fourth cousin or closer, they are going to be related within a genealogical time frame. Right. And then you start getting beyond that, you might pick up more and more of these identical by state matches. And they're not exceptionally helpful to you, are they? They can really throw a wrench into your research. They can. Yeah, they can. Particularly if if you've got a lot of them and they form a nice cluster, sometimes they don't tie in. They're the puzzles with the missing pieces. Yeah, right. Well, so let me ask you this. Periodically, I see these long lines of shared matches, and I don't know where any of them fit into any of my lines. And I'm thinking, well, is it possible for somebody who is identical by state to share that many matches with me? Um, It's possible. And one of the reasons for that is because some of these identical by state segments or, you know, segments that are small are from very distant ancestors that may have been quite prolific. And so Hmm. there's lots of people sharing on those particular 
segments. Sometimes companies can refer to these segments where lots of people are sharing as pile-up segments. They're segments that are shared with many members of the population, maybe because of a very prolific ancestor, maybe from a very distant ancestor, or maybe because it's a, a conserved sequence that is evolutionarily advantageous, that just <laughs> continues to get passed on and passed on, and our biology just holds on to it. So there are certainly situations where you may have a segment that you share with tons of people just because you share it in common with lots of people doesn't mean that it's necessarily identical by descent, that you'll be able to identify the common ancestor hmm. who was the source of that DNA. So this is perhaps why when I go through all these various trees, I can't find anybody in common among any of them many generations back. Yeah, and that sometimes does happen typically at lower levels of sharing. Right. So you're talking about if you're on Ancestry, the fifth to eighth cousin matches. Typically, but I have seen it in fourth cousin matches as well, 25, 30 centimorgans as well. Hmm. But not very commonly. Not very commonly. It's much more common in that, in that lower range of matches. It's good to know that some of these matches might not be matches, right? And you have to start to consider what these numbers are and go, okay, well, maybe I just put that aside for the time being until I can yep. really prove that this is real when I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Paul, do you have any idea when Ancestry is going to actually tell us how many centimorgans we share with matches and our matches share with each other? Because we're only seeing it to us as it stands right now. That's true. So we only see it to us. There are some ways that you can get some hints or clues regarding shared matches. So we know that if you and one of your genetic cousins have a shared match at Ancestry, what that indicates is that all three of you share at least 20 centimorgans with each other. So we know that you share at least that much. Now, it could be that, you know, I share 20 centimorgans with person A, and they share 120 centimorgans with person C, and the person C shares 50 centimorgans with me. And mm -hmm. that would be useful information. There's no way to find that out right now. I don't know if Ancestry plans on sharing that information in the future. If they do, I'll be very happy. If they don't, <laughs> I'll still be happy with, with what they are providing us that we can use that for family history. Well, research. they've certainly provided a lot, not to mention the fact there are, what, like 15 million testers on there right now, far bigger than anybody else in the world. Yeah, just by size alone, we can get some great benefits by testing Mad Ancestry. And, and at each of the companies, each company has its pros, its cons, and its strengths and weaknesses. He is Paul Woodbury, DNA specialist at Legacy Tree Genealogist. Thanks so much, Paul. Always great chatting with you. I always learn something, and I hope you have a great summer. Thank you. Time once again for our Ask Us Anything segment of the show today with Ron Fox. He is, in my mind, the finder of all finders because uh, Ron not only does great genealogy, but he loves to track down objects that he learns about. You know, where have they gone since 150 years ago or 200 years ago or 100 years ago? And uh, he's had amazing experiences with this in discovering them, not only for his own family, but for others and also for business. And and Ron, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Scott. And uh, we have a question here from Patricia in Denver. She asks, how do you use local universities to track down photographs? Well, local universities are great repositories. Colleges, universities, they will have, for example, uh, the local university here has some 2 million photographs in it. And 
uh, a lot of the problem sometimes is getting them cataloged properly. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is they have them. And you can go and search family names on universities, and you'll find their papers will be there. And you'll find that with the papers will be photographs. And many times they'll keep them together, but they haven't organized them yet. But most universities in that are going through and scanning most all of their documents and their photographs. But they prioritize them from the standpoint of, you know, the earlier stuff first. And secondarily, they'll go for architectural photos of homes, houses, downtowns, buildings. But it's all very helpful because you can piece things together and you can make amazing finds in these university collections. There's one that I'm familiar with that was a manager of a, of a major theater in, the, in a town. And every artist that came in to perform, he had every one of their photographs autographed. You know, anybody who was in the theatrical era that actually traveled, this guy probably has a photograph of your great-grandfather in this collection. So, you know, you never know what you're going to find. Well, you know, this is very interesting you mentioned that because I know David Lambert has talked about the fact that he went into an archive once and found that there was a collection. He thought it was a poor collection. In other words, a collection of poor families, you know, those yeah. who are destitute. No, it was the poor family, P-O-O-R, and mm-hmm. that was their family name. And mm-hmm. so it was misfiled. And when he got into this thing, he actually found one of his ancestors' diaries talking about the battle he was just in in the Revolutionary War. And, you know, that was not cataloged correctly. It was hidden as a result of that. So it really makes a big difference if you can get in and look into some of these things, because there's often more than is just cataloged, right? Absolutely. The thing is, people donate large groups of materials to universities and colleges, and those have to go through a process of sifting, you know, from the standpoint of importance. Is this person, was an important person in the community, or was he just a citizen that wanted to give their scrapbooks and their other papers that may be associated with their life and or family Bibles or whatever they may be, but then they have to catalog them, and that takes a long process. And sometimes, you know, you can find things also through looking through geographic sites in the university where they have groups from certain small communities that they would have them collected as a community. And what's so wonderful about today is everything is online. You finally have to go to the place, you know, where it's being held at a college or university. But just being able to go into a register and take a look at the holdings of a college or a university and how they organize it and pulling up a name or even picking up a neighbor's name. If you knew there was a prominent neighbor and the neighbor might have had a journal and talked about his neighbor who was your relative next door. You just never know. You know, you hear in families all the time about Aunt Betsy's silver set or you hear about Grandpa's old gun and and you really wondered what happened to that, you know? So the best way to do it is you track it down. A lot of times you can use family histories that are printed. Other times you can go to Ancestry or, or Family Search or any of the others. You can find and pick up a name and then you think, but how could I find it going forward? You get to a person from the 1940 census, and then what do I do from there? Well, then you go over to the newspaper services, and those newspaper services will pick up their deaths, their daughter's wedding, the birth of a son, 
and you just keep going, following the newspapers down generation after generation. And soon you can go to a white pages service or something else, and you'll find a relative or you'll find that individual, and you pick up the phone and you call them. I mean, I tried to track down a photographer from the 19th century to find any of his rare photos with uh, another family member, and I went down to a great, great, great grandchildren. And I was successful in finding that one of them had one photograph that he had taken. It was surprising to me that there were not more photographs out there that he had taken during his lifetime. So something happened to him. Sure. I personally had a thing where I found an 1820 Kentucky long rifle that was owned by my great-grandfather, and I traced it down doing each line it took probably a week to do but it was it was well worth <laughs> it, took it. A week. and now That's it's it. in my home yeah <laughs> so how did you know that the rifle existed in the first place just by uh, a mention in a journal about great grandfather had kept his rifle and now another member of the family had owned it and this was a journal note from like 1958 or something like that and so i had to go find their children and their grandchildren and i found it This is one thing I can tell you about families. They will keep things that are important to their family, and they may not look at them very often, but it may be in a box or it may be in a trunk or it may be something, and it gets taken from generation to generation to these homes, and they're just looking for somebody who would ask for something. If they personally really just appreciates that item, the likelihood of them just giving it to you or selling it to you is is very great. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I know what you're talking about because I remember reading in an application by my father's second cousin. He wanted to join the Sons of the American Revolution back around 1919, 1920. And he referenced in there his sources for his application for his family lines back to the ancestor was a, a couple of family Bibles. And he mentioned who was in possession of that at that time. And that was his aunt. Well, I was in touch with her grandson who only passed away in 2013. And as it turned out, he had those Bible records and I was able to obtain them after his passing. It's unbelievable once you're able to kind of narrow down where these things could go, how you could actually learn about some item from back in the day and then find where they are today and obtain them. It's unbelievable. It is. And of course, the more prominent the person is, the more likely that they were kept. Right. Ron, thank you so much. We appreciate having you on the show, and you've, I'm sure, inspired a lot of people with this, and you've got my juices flowing again to find some stuff. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Very good. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us, Genies. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.